Hello everyone. I welcome you to the First Baptist Church of Westfield Sunday service. If you wouldn't mind, please open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. And before we begin, uh, just a few thoughts on what we went over last time in Isaiah. Um, We saw from verses 8 through 12 how there was this pride in the leadership and how that led to um, chastisement with the people all, all together, how they were very arrogant in their thoughts. They believed that they could um, be chastised by God, but even if that were the case, and even if they were to struggle, in the end, they would just rise up out of the ashes, and they kept on believing we could do better even if bad things happened to us. All the while, they kept on ignoring God, who was there trying to lead them back into how they should be. And then from verses uh, 13 through 17, we saw how the leadership very specifically failed and how that led to the failing of the people, how the people themselves were um, being led into darkness and not doing anything about it at all either. And because of that, it led to uh, God chastising them even further, taking away any kind of leadership that they could even have. And that led to them being leaderless, and it led ultimately to even further um, societal uh, anarchy and problems. So now we're going to come to a few more issues that they had and judgments further against God for their arrogance and for their oppressive natures. So now we come to verse 18. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. And they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together, they are against Judah. For all of this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. So the poetic structure continues with wickedness being described as a fire. The truth is, wickedness is like this. When corruption comes, it begins to permeate all of the individual and society. When people are corrupted, their ideas become corrupted, their emotions, um, their relationships, what they do, everything they touch becomes corrupted as well. Yet it isn't enough to speak of wickedness as corruption because corruption implies something insidious. And a lot more, though, a lot of times it more is like a fire. It really does burn over everything. Wickedness is worthy of judgment. The wrath of God comes against the wicked because God is moral and he is righteous. If humans live in wickedness, then the result will be judgment. Just as wickedness burns the life, uh, the wrath of God scorches the earth. Since wickedness is itself um, infects so deeply, God will purge that which is corrupted, which is all of it. Notice, though, that people are like fuel to the fire. It is interesting, uh, an interesting statement that could be misconstrued. It isn't so much that people's bodies are literally burning, providing fuel, but more so their wickedness is fuel for the fire of God's wrath. In this sense, people are fuel for the fire because they are the ones who bring wickedness through their choices, and that leads to further judgment. Um, This is seen in how the prophet describes them as not sparing one another. The people are described as selfish, arrogant. They take and eat but are never satisfied. They willingly devour their own flesh, not realizing that their wickedness is causing not only harm to those around them, but to themselves as people. This is further described as Manasseh and Ephraim. 
devour one another. Manasseh and Ephraim were the two largest tribes in the northern kingdom of Israel, and both were originally the sons of Joseph. Yet, we find them fighting and feuding. This may even cause us to consider the northern kingdom itself, where most of the kings met their ends through fratricide, where corrupt individuals would kill corrupt individuals in order to win the crown. And that happened plenty of times in the north with the uh, regicide as well. Because of all these things, because of their wickedness, which infects the whole of the people, even to the core of their relationships with one another and themselves, God's anger remains and has not yet turned away. Now we come to verses 1 through 4, and this will end and conclude these, these different um, judgments against the people. So starting with verse 1. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right and the widow, that the widows, widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of judgment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. We now come to the final statement against the people, at least for this section. Now we turn to the practice of oppression. This represents the lawgivers who either write new laws or are interpreting old ones in order to uh, maintain injustices. This is seen in four ways. The first is those who are in need. They do not find justice. The second is the poor who are robbed of their right. The widows are the third. Instead of being protected, are being taken advantage of. And finally, the fatherless who are marginalized themselves are being pursued not with goodness, but are being taken advantage of also. Ultimately, all these people and these concepts are rooted in the Mosaic law. Despite what some may believe, the law itself provides justice for all by treating each person within the society equally. Instead of this happening for the society, those who are marginalized are being taken advantage of by those who are in power. While it is true previously the people themselves are not blameless, even the orphan and the widow, that does not excuse those in power from treating them as less than human or in a way which is against what God would have, which is that everyone should be treated equally regardless of societal status according to the law. For those who are in leadership positions who are treating the less fortunate and marginalized in this way, what possible result could come from their wickedness? Do they think that they will somehow escape the judgment to come because they are wealthy? The God who could help them, they have scorned by their injustice and their willingness to treat others as less important in regards to the law. Such acts are shameful to a God who shows no partiality between the rich or the poor. Because of this, there will be nothing to keep them safe during the trouble. They will either crouch among the prisoners, being captives just as the poor are, um, as the, and those who they've oppressed have been captives, or they will fall into death in battle. This is all happening because of their wickedness, and yet the people continue to pursue selfishness, wickedness, and oppression rather than seek true justice in their society. And because of this, God's wrath and his anger is still against the people. All right, so the main point of these verses are to show the destruction which comes from wickedness. 
First, in regards to the normal societal level, in which case close relationships between family and self are destroyed. The second is in regards to injustice, which is seen as not all the people are being treated equally, but those most marginalized are being taken advantage of instead of being looked after as they should. This shows a partiality within the justice system itself, which is therefore being abused by those in power, and this is something that God detests. So in today's text, we are able to see the repercussions of wickedness. The prophet rightly describes the wickedness as a fire. Once wickedness comes, it does not only affect one portion of us, but quickly spreads over all of us. This in turn leads to society at large, because while we are individuals, we are also individuals in society in which our choices have an effect. The first way this is seen is how the people live in selfishness. This selfishness does not only lead to them becoming gluttonous on their own, instead it leads to groups attacking one another and trying to gain the upper hand on the other group. We see this as Ephraim and Manasseh are described in such a way, with both of them going against Judah as well. So the people are acting in selfishness, which leads to treating others in a negative way. But this doesn't just happen with the right and left side of the person, the way that the text describes it. It also means that there is nothing left of the person themselves. Notice how they eat their own arm. When wickedness is able to run free in a person, it leads to an overarching destruction, a conclusion we cannot escape should we choose to live in, wicked, in wickedness. Again, this is the way of wickedness. It consumes like a fire because all it touches becomes part of the flames. It all goes up in smoke, so to speak, just like the text describes. We humans are the ones who feed the fires raging around us through our choices to entertain wickedness rather than righteousness. We do this through our own form of justification. We justify our insatiable appetite for wickedness by believing we aren't yet full. We allow ourselves to be gluttons of wickedness because we believe if only we had a little bit more. Instead of being satisfied with what God has already provided, we continually take from the left and the right, not realizing as we take, we end up eating ourselves in the process. Why? Because we believe it isn't enough, justifying our actions in this way as we go. While the two poetic statements are separate in their discussion, we see how wickedness also manifests itself in society through individuals who are willing to take away the rights of one group in favor of another. We saw how the needy, the poor, the widows, and the orphans were all individuals who were, in need of, uh, who were being cheated out of justice by individuals who had power and wealth. These individuals were willingly taking advantage of these other groups rather than taking care of them as they should. This might be interesting since last time we were in Isaiah, we learned how God had no more compassion on the widows and the fatherless. But we need to always remember that God expects us to do what is good in obedience to him, regardless of the circumstances. Even if the needy, poor, widows, and fatherless are acting in ways which are unjust, it doesn't mean that they should be treated unjustly. This is true of, let's say, the rich or the powerful. While in our society it can be easy for us to separate into groups and believe that we should treat others differently, in such an understanding, it actually leads to further chaos and problems than if justice itself is served equally across the board. This is the way of true justice, all equally being compared to the same measure. It's when either rich or poor, or young or old, male or female are treated differently in the law that it leads to corruption. 
as we know the examples, uh, when there are rich individuals, for example, who get away with sexual assault or rape, or one of their heirs gets away with it with an incredibly light sentence, and we all kind of wonder how on earth is that possible. Or if a rich person has illegal substances, and instead of serving time, they get off with a slap on the wrist, meanwhile, those in the inner city go to jail or prison. There becomes a discrepancy which is not really justice in the end, and it shows in the society that there's something wrong with that justice system. Still, the problem isn't necessarily in being rich, and the problem isn't in writing laws. The problem is that they are purposefully hindering the already marginalized instead of treating them as equals. This leads to corruption in the system, where those who are in need are being treated less fairly than those who are not in need. Instead of being taken care of, they are being taken advantage of as a whole. As Christians living in a freer society than most, this is something we should learn from. We are able to take the concept that true justice is equal across the board and apply it to our own systems of government and law. It requires us to look at the evidence at hand and figure out which laws are potentially treating individuals differently based upon their status in society. Said another way, if one crime is committed by a rich individual and the same crime is committed by a poor individual, both should receive the same or similar judgments. Unfortunately, there have been many times when individuals who do things which are illegal are allowed to get away with it based upon their total wealth or prestige. You can just imagine certain politicians who seem to get away with it. Again, such a thing should be rejected since true justice is then not enforced. We should be vocal proponents of justice being blind and being weighed as equals. And this is why oftentimes when you see Lady Justice um, uh, as a statue, for example, she's blindfolded holding um, a measure. And the reason why is because when that weight is then distributed, she doesn't know about the circumstances. She's just hearing the evidence and then deciding it based upon the evidence, not looking at the class, not looking at the race or the gender of the person. She's just listening to what is happening. Um, and that's a wise way to look at it when we really think about it. Um, still, though, that is what we should be doing. We should be vocal proponents of justice being blind and being weighed as equals. So it seems wise for us to raise then individuals who understand the concept of non-partiality or those who are going to be partial, then it should be partial toward justice itself. The scriptures focus greatly on the marginalized because society often treats, treats them as means to an end. It should be the Christian then who understands the words of justice and fights against broken systems, which takes advantage of such people. These are all ways of wickedness. It always leads to oppression and violence. Whether we oppress others of different social status, different race, different gender, etc., whether we are violent against such individuals, in the end it all stems from wickedness which burns like a fire, setting ablaze all that it touches. Over and over again, we see the repercussions, and over and over again, we see that God's anger is not slated against a society that treats its people as cattle or as means to an end. If we are, not, or if we are to be faithful followers of the Prince of Peace, then the response we should have to all these things is true justice, since it is upon justice and righteousness which his kingdom is established, as we found earlier in Isaiah 9. It means that we are to be the ones who are to fight the fires of wickedness by living in righteousness. 
It requires us to make the choice in our churches and in our communities to be the salt and the light of the world. Not because we are so great in and of ourselves, but because we know God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, and in whose coming inaugurated an eternal kingdom founded on justice and righteousness. An eternal kingdom that does not show partiality, where rich, poor, weak, strong can all enter into communion and fellowship with one another in charity and love. Where, one, where we can come together to be the example for the rest of the world, showing them what generosity, kindness, patience, and understanding looks like in a dark world, despite our many differences. So we have the reason for seeking the injustices in our world and fighting against them by being engaged and actively seeking to end that which causes so much pain. It means each of us as individuals, but also corporately as the body, are called to seek what is good in our congregation, what is just and righteous, allowing it then to spill out onto the world around us. That requires us to be faithful adherents to God and what he has called us to be in this world. If we aren't, then the result will be the same as it was in ancient Israel and Judah. The result will be wickedness, which is the society that persists in will continue to engulf the people. It will burn through to the core, and it will not leave anything remaining, whether to our right, to our left, or to our center. We can't be foolish, though, either. We are blessed to live in a society where we can speak out, where we can act out, and where we can make a difference, even if it is a minor one. This should not cause us to believe, however, that this nation or any nation um, will become a utopia or a heaven on earth. The truth is, human wickedness will always be a reality until the second coming of Christ. Thus, we acknowledge during this age, evil will persist in the world. But that doesn't give us any reason to not use our freedom for good. It doesn't mean we cannot hope, and it doesn't mean we do not desire to see changes in this world, which may be necessary to achieve what is good in our society. Though we should fail at times, we know we can still make a change for the good, by God's help. Still, the reason we must actively seek to do good is because wickedness is so prevalent. Because wickedness permeates the human person, destroying their relationship with God, other people, and themselves. It becomes necessary for us to always seek to undo the brokenness which wickedness brings and causes. Not again for ourselves, and not because we are so strong to be able to do so, but because of Christ and his strength. Thankfully, for all of this, we are able to know what wickedness looks like either in ourselves or in society because we know the scriptures. Because we know God exists and has spoken to us. Because we know the ultimate source of all good things, which is God himself. We can seek to define these things because we know one who defines them for us. Thus, our definitions of wickedness or justice or righteousness are not social constructs, but truths given to us by God through his holy character and his personhood. Yet, the scriptures always remind us that there are repercussions for our choices. So the choice is ours to seek righteousness individually and corporately or not to. If we do, then true change is possible through God's faithfulness. If not, then know the repercussions of wickedness. It burns like a fire and it will encompass all of who we are as individual persons, but also as a society. Naturally, this leads us to the gospel, 
Because without the gospel, none of this would really have any great meaning, would it? Without the gospel, we are just here as people of cattle, basically. And even if we were treated as cattle, or if we were to treat others as cattle, it wouldn't matter. If we were to treat others as less than the image of God, it wouldn't have any effect or any meaning without the gospel of Jesus Christ. Indeed, when we really consider the whole book of the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New, without the gospel as the linchpin, it's a very dark book that just shows human misery after human misery. And so that's why we can look at Isaiah and we can see, okay, this is what wickedness looks like because Isaiah knew God who was good and then was able to look at the society and see how that did not match what he knew of what goodness was, which is God. So now, when it comes to the gospel, though, it requires us to go to the beginning, which is that God is the first cause of all the universe. It's from him and his wisdom that he created all that we see. And then fully he created humanity to bear his image. Um, And that way we are able to have personhood. We're able to will. We're able to choose between what is right and wrong. We are able to follow after God or choose not to follow after God. Um, But ultimately, even if this is the case, it shows us that all humanity has dignity, sanctity, and worth to life no matter who they are. And that we should always seek these things in each other to recognize that we are all made in the image of God. And it is a wonderful, glorious thing. But like we see in Isaiah, something goes wrong with society. Something goes wrong with people. Because in the end, we are always seeking to oppress others, and we're always seeking to be violent toward others. Those who we disagree with, we often want to hurt and chastise, and not chastise in a good way, but hurt and harm. And so the question is, why is that the case? And the answer is wickedness. Wickedness consumes like a fire, just like the prophet proclaimed. And when we allow wickedness to be made manifest in ourselves, and we allow wickedness to run free in society, it's going to burn that society down to the ground. And the same is true when it comes to our own selves. When we allow wickedness within, it will lead to without. And so we have this huge problem because God's anger is still there, isn't it? For oppression, for violence, for leaders who are failures. And for people in the society who then follow the leaders blindly. And so the question is, what should we do? The question is, what can be done when we are such a people as this who are so fallen and so broken? As C.S. Lewis used to say, we are so bent towards darkness. Unfortunately, we deserve judgment, so there's nothing that we can do about it. But thanks be to God, there is something that he has done. Thanks be to God that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, to inaugurate a kingdom which would last forever, which is built on righteousness and justice, where people from all races and genders and societal Uh, statuses can come together and worship the one true God of all and learn how to live in love and charity and grace and peace. It's all because of Jesus Christ who lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. There will be no peace without Jesus Christ. There is only wickedness apart from him. 
And so it is necessary for us to always hear the gospel, to proclaim the gospel over and over and over again. Because without the gospel, there's no good news. Without the coming of Jesus Christ, there is no hope. Instead, we're stuck in cycles, always harming, always hurting. And then even those who think that, okay, well, we don't need God in order to bring about the end of this harm and this need. The only way that they can bring it about is through the sword. Yeah, what do we find of the Prince of Peace? He comes and he lays down his life. So different. So different. And it's only through his life, death, and resurrection that we can have peace with God, peace with each other, peace with ourselves. And we receive righteousness and justice and understand what it means. And even those who were so filled with fury and anger and who wanted to only harm, and even though we were so guilty in that, we can find redemption. And it's through Jesus Christ that this is possible. So as the world continues to do its thing, as the world continues to burn around us, we can remember that we have true peace with God and that the only way we can have peace with ourselves and each other is if we remind ourselves of the gospel. And then let that permeate all of the rest of us. So that way we can speak out against injustice and we can rise up to the occasion to proclaim the truth. Ultimately, those who believe in Christ, those who place their faith in him, those who seek to follow him in repentance, turning away from sinfulness and wickedness, in the end, those will experience glory. But those who do not, the wrath of God is still there. And so we have to be warned. We have to be warned about judgment because judgment is real. If God is good, then he must hate evil. And he does. But the invitation is always there for anyone, no matter who you are. And no matter what, God is always there to transform even the hardest of hearts for his glory. So we rejoice in this. We rejoice that God is sovereign. We rejoice over the fact that he does get angry at wickedness. And it's a good thing. But we also rejoice that even wickedness can be undone by Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the prophets of old and how they criticize their own societies, not with false beliefs, but by turning toward you, seeing your goodness, seeing your sovereignty and your might, and concluding you are the best thing for the world. So Lord, we ask that if we should be prophetic in our own time, it would not be as ignorant or selfish individuals seeking our own gain, but that we would seek to glorify your name. Because Lord, you are truly worthy of us. You are the true sovereign. And no matter what may happen in this world, you are greater than it. So Lord, we ask that you would give us wisdom to navigate during these times. That we would have 
justice and righteousness in mind as we seek to better society, not for ourselves, but for you. And that in the end, you would be our ultimate purpose. We thank you. In the name of your wonderful son, we pray. Amen. I thank you for joining us this Sunday, and I pray that you have a wonderful week in the Lord. God bless.